Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Africast. My name is Brendan Lotz, and joining me this week is Rob Lichetti. Howdy. And Clinton Matos. Hello again, everyone. Yes, he's still alive. He's still alive, still. <laughs> he is. I keep going. Joins us every now and then for the Africast. Um, this week, we've got something a little bit interesting for you. We've got an interview with the creators of Owl Song, which is an original short that's part of Star Wars Vision Season 2. We'll get into that a little bit later, Um, but for now, let's get into the news. Starting with you, Robin, you got something from Durko. Yes, the Department of International Relations and Cooperation. Um, As we have seen in recent months, uh, professional fence-sitters, for lack of a better term, (laughs) um, they recently... Uh, made an announcement as regards the upcoming BRICS meetings. Uh, there's one happening, well, it's already happening, or it's currently underway, depending on when you're listening to this, in Cape Town. There's also going to be one happening in Johannesburg. That's the larger, uh, I guess, more official uh, BRICS summit where yeah. all, most of the leaders are expected to join. And that's where things get interesting. So Durko uh, released an announcement stating that all um, all delegates essentially have diplomatic community when they're attending a BRICS summit. Okay. Um, so it was, uh, it's rather interesting, as, as we know, because uh, BRICS makes, is made up of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Uh, Russia and China in particular um, have tensions with the global West, global North, how you want to frame it. Um, but the ongoing conflict in the Ukraine means that Russia is not in everyone's good books. And China and the U.S. continue to battle it out over economic and other kind of issues so geopolitical i think is the correct term <laughs> yeah sure oh. um so south africa kind of finds itself in the middle of that and as it's we will be hosting uh the BRICS summit uh, in august uh, and potentially also hosting those world leaders um all eyes will be on south africa to see what it does uh, as we know um the leaders of russia and china are divisive to say the least mm-hmm. the same also goes for uh, Mr. Mr. Modi from uh, India. India. Um, Brazil, not less so. I guess they're kind of more like South Africa in that regard, although their elections were interesting to say yeah. the least. So, yeah. Um, they have been given immunity. Uh, the official statement said that um, the Department of International Relations and Cooperation issued a notice in the Government Gazette of Diplomatic Immunities and Privileges for the upcoming BRICS Foreign Ministers Meeting in Cape Town and BRICS Summit to be held in Joburg in August. Uh, this is a standard uh, conferment of immunities that will do all that we do for all international conferences and summits held in South Africa, irrespective of the level level of participation. The immunities are for the conference and not for specific individuals. And now that is where things get interesting. What? So if, for example, there is some kind of... uh, What's the term they use here? (laughs) Robin's trying to be very diplomatic here. Some kind of warrant out uh, for a particular leader. Yeah. The uh, immunity that's been granted here does not supersede that. So if, for example, oh. you are a war criminal, for example. For yeah. example. Okay. A random example. Yes. And there is a warrant out uh, internationally for by, by some kind of tribunal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it says here that Dirk are not going to step in. They will... Allow that warrant to be executed. Yes. That said, we have had uh, African leaders in South Africa who... who yeah. For all intents and purposes, <laughs> are war criminals. Yet nothing happened. So... 
again, the eyes will be on Dirk to see what they do. So, I mean, we know that uh, Premier Alan Wind, who's the Premier of the Western Cape, uh, he mentioned that he would, uh, he would be arresting one of these leaders. I don't want to mention who because I don't want to start a a geopolitical upset. Um, but he said that his, uh, what were peace officers, are they? Are they peace officers? I believe oh. that's, they called that. Um, that they would arrest one of these leaders. So, so he's not doing it himself. It's interesting that Durko has said that they won't, um, they won't be like superseding any warrants on certain political figures. Well, the thing is, um, with all due respect to Mr. Wynn, that summit that's happening in Cape Town is not the big one. Yeah. The big one is happening in August in Joburg. Yeah. And that's potentially where world leaders, or rather nation leaders, will be attending. So with all due respect to him, his, his meeting is not the big meeting. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think eyes will be on South Africa for really for that meeting. It's one in August that will be mm. really particularly interesting. I mean, it's such a messy situation because like BRICS as an economic alliance makes sense for all the parties involved, especially India and Brazil and South Africa. Maybe not so much Russia and China because they are quite, I, mean, I don't want to say that they are like superpowers, but they sort of are in their China's own right. Superpower. They have yeah. more money than us, yeah. I think is so the best way to say that. Whereas like India, South Africa and Brazil, we're kind of still emerging markets, mm. third world emerging markets, right? So, I mean, as an economic sort of alliance, BRICS makes sense. But now when you get situations like this where the eyes of the world are on us because one certain leader from one European country uh, is visiting the country. I mean, yeah. Oof. It's a mess. Well, Bring man, your broom. Can you imagine if there's like a, a war kicks off in South Africa. Please no. I'm not let's trying, not, to, let's not I'm not trying to jinx us. I'm let's just not saying. Let's imagine that. Let's imagine. I, that. Every time South Africa is in the news, it's for a bad reason. I hate seeing South Africa let's in the Let's imagine news, so. that the summit ends load shedding. That's great. Positive. Are, are you expecting some <laughs> deity to attend the, uh, yeah, yeah, some non-denominational deity to attend? Be like, no more load shooting. That's anyway, it. Bye. So this is happening in August. This big conference. Yeah, the, the Joburg one. Yeah, okay. The Cape one is currently underway. Yeah. Um, and nothing has happened yet. Yet. Uh, but yeah, like I said, all eyes will be in Joburg in August. And uh, best of luck to Prison Sorong Pause and kind of guys. Bought your canned beans. Yeah. Have you got your shelters ready to go? Um, okay, Clinton, enough with this now. I wonder You're how many preppers are there in South Africa? Probably a few. Probably yeah, a few. make some friends with them. Speaking of war, uh, <laughs> nuclear war, <laughs> this week the Center for AI Safety published a single sentence statement calling for au- uh, caution in the development of AI. That sentence reads. Mitigating the risk of extinction. Sorry, let me try that again. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority, alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. Very short, very succinct. Um, And the reason for that is that the Center for AI AI Safety wants to kind of create a clarion call that all parties can rally behind when it comes to developing AI. So they said, AI experts, journalists, uh, journalists, policymakers, and the public are increasingly discussing a broad spectrum of importance and urgent risks from AI. Even so, it can be difficult to voice concerns about some of advanced AI's most severe risks. The succinct statement below aims to overcome this obstacle and open up discussion. It is also meant to create common knowledge of the growing number of experts and public figures who have also who also take some of advanced AI's most severe risks seriously. Um, This letter, I suppose, was signed by the likes of uh, OpenAI and uh, Google's DeepMind. Um, And Grimes. 
And Grimes. I, I would say Grimes also <laughs> Did Grimes? Yes. Cool. Oh, well, oh, if she's silent, then you know. So it's kind of it's kind of an odd one because I mean, no real action is promised here. Um, earlier this year, the Future of Life Institute uh, penned a really robust statement regarding AI, um, and like basically they called for a six month pause on development of platforms that are more powerful than GPT-4. Unfortunately, neither DeepMind nor OpenAI has signed that letter. Um, It also doesn't really, they don't have to. These are just independent bodies that are calling for caution or calling for some sort of cease. It's not like governments are doing this. Um, But I do kind of think that setting the bar at pandemic and nuclear war is a bit of a high bar to set. Um, considering that we have the likes of AI replacing people's jobs. So people being destitute on the streets is not nuclear war, yeah. but I would argue it's a real problem um, that's not being taken into account here. And while you do have the likes of OpenAI and Google DeepMind signing this letter, what does that really mean in the greater scheme of things? It's a platitude. It means yeah. nothing. Yeah, it means nothing. It's hey, we were on the right side of history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we signed this letter. Cool, but you still continue to profit off of it. You still continue to develop it, and it got out of hand. Now what? Your signature means absolutely nothing. I think I wrote in this story, um, until such time OpenAI and Google Mind cease development of their models, their signatures on the Center for AI Safety statements are just more fodder for their AI to suck up and continue to learn from, which is like a real big problem. Or, and also considering that a lot of these AI bots are just scraping the internet, there's a whole big debate around copyright infringement and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, that's not nuclear war. So do we really need to be concerned about it? For me, it's a, it's a same problem it's always been that policymakers, regulators, governments, uh, whatever you want to call them, they move too damn slow. Yeah, I mean, for this, for this technology, it, it, they can't keep up. I mean, we're, we're only now in some parts of the world discussing cryptocurrency regulation. For what? The, the scammers have made their money and they're long gone. Yep. Like, I, I mean, you had the, the downfall of what's his name? Sam Backman Fried with uh, what was their name now? I can't even remember. FTX. Yes. So FTX collapses. What's happened? I mean, he's in court, but like, what's going to happen there? He's probably just going to get a slap on the wrist. Don't do this again, naughty man. Walk along. I mean, there's, like you say, governments are way too slow to address the change that technology, like, or the rate that technology changes that rather. And yeah, AI is going to run away by the time that the sleepy lawmakers who question whether <laughs> when my phone connects to TikTok, is it connected to the internet? Can it see all the devices does, on my does, Wi-Fi? Does TikTok use the internet? Yeah, I mean, it's just oh, like a, that's the level of people that we're dealing with. Um, like people asking Mark Zuckerberg the most inane questions about Facebook. It, it's just these folks don't understand. And if they do understand, then that's willful ignorance, which is even more concerning. So yeah, um, Cool. Google, uh, Google and OpenAI agree that we need to be careful about uh, AI causing pandemics and nuclear war scale threats. Well, so it's not like Google, Google. Let's be like, it's not yeah. Google. It's, <laughs> it's like, like a it's division. Not it's, it's a division. Really. So, I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just like we said, like you said, it's platitudes. It doesn't mean anything. Um, and the fact that it's a one sentence uh, one sentence statement that literally boils down to if it's worse than a pandemic and nuclear war needs to be stopped that's not good enough anyway Clinton let's get on to something a little yes. bit more happy Into the Spider-Verse number yeah. two no, even though this one's actually quite serious if you watch the trailers they're like oh the multiverse is ending or big things <laughs> happening but uh, 
in comparison to everything else we talked about, this is much more lighthearted. So, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse 2023. Today, 2nd June, when we're recording this and publishing it, it is launching in South Africa and most parts of the world. It is the direct sequel to 2018 Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And I'm um, not going to spoil anything. And also, I have a full review. Links to all the stories we talked about are in the uh, body of this podcast. So, was it good? Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, they, you know, that's the long and short of it. Is it better? Right, that's it. Yeah, okay, bye, bro. Let's go to the main thing. Thanks, Much appreciated. Was it better than the first movie? I think it was in almost every way. Um, I am... Which is high praise, considering yeah, how good I'm blown that away that they is. have advanced the animation again. Oh, wow. Um, you know, a lot of people saw that movie. It's like, oh, this is the peak. Like, what, where can we go from here? And then this movie comes out. I was like, oh, well, that's how. <laughs> it's, um, it's, and it's not just the animation. I also think the story and the writing and everything is just better. Uh, it feels like Lord and Miller, and it must have been countless animators and other very talented people who worked on this movie. They had a, an incredible first shot in 2018, and it blew the doors off. And then they're like, okay, now we know what we're doing. Mm. We can build on that. And that's exactly what they did. Um, do I? Where does this sit in like the the Spider-Man pantheon? <laughs> it's very near the top. It might be the best Spider-Man movie, you know, in general. Uh, recently, we better than Spider-Man three, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I recently rewatched No Way Home, and it's hard not to watch that one. I'm like, oh, they brought all the Spider-Men I grew up with them <laughs> I think this might even be better than that as a lot of people say um, Spider-Man 2 Tobey Maguire is the best Spider-Man movie it might even be better than that and I want to say now uh, I want to watch Across the Spider-Verse again at some point this might be the best Spider-Man movie ever I'm not sure yet it might be so I said the animation was great the writing is great the story is great the one thing is that the audio wasn't as great as everything I don't think the music was as good as the first movie. Mm. That may be subjective, but I think about the first movie, the first thing I think of is the like audio sting and the music they had for The Prowler. Mm. That is like burnt into my brain. And I don't think there was anything in that movie that is just so like instantly iconic. That people oh, there's no like remember. Sunflower kind of song. Well, yeah. uh, that's what I was going to get to. They, again, like the first movie, they use a combination of a new original score and existing songs. But the way they use the existing songs is that they didn't let them play out for too long. At one point, um, you had a character like going down the stairs of a building, and they play like 20 seconds of an existing song. I was like, was that necessary? Maybe you already bought the rights and you put it on the OST, so you had to use it somewhere. But th- that section could have used like a snippet of the original music. We could have just left that out. It was a 20-second scene. You didn't need music there. So I don't think music and the audio in general was used as well. But again, maybe that's subjective. Maybe uh, once I see the movie again, I'll see a music theme that is as iconic as the um, Prowler theme in the first movie. So it could be my personal taste for music. It could be that it isn't as good, or it could be that I need to see the movie again. Um, but something I'm very confident in saying, is, and I say this with every movie re- review that we talk about, why can they not do audio balance properly for the dialogue? Why? There are so many scenes in this movie where I was just struggling to hear what the characters were saying because the dialogue was not um, balanced high enough. It seems like I come into these podcasts or I write the, the reviews every time and I just say, please, please just make the audio a bit louder. Please make the audio clearer. Why has Hollywood forgotten how to balance audio? 
Brendan, you know more about audio than any of us. Can, do you have any insight about why this is happening in movies? This, um, bad, this epidemic of bad audio. So I honestly think that it's partly to do with... Uh, so when you mix audio, I yes. don't know if this is true, but I'm going to guide you through what, how, what I know about mixing audio. Yes. When you're mixing audio, you're sitting in a studio where everything is perfect. Yes. And you balance things so that dialogue and music sound good but yes. the problem with this is is that you're using really good studio grade speakers and generally when you speak to sound engineers what they'll tell you to do or older sound engineers they'll tell you to mix on the worst speakers possible yes so that when, that when you mix on bad speakers the great speakers are going to sound fantastic. Yes. But you should actually do it across a wide range. So the only thing I can think of what's happening is that we have so many different media outlets, so many different compression types, so many different things that they're trying to kind of create a neutral balance. Yes. And that doesn't work. Okay. Because you can't, you like, for instance, when you take it into a cinema setting, mm. right, you're going to have problems where because the cinema's layout you're going to have the bass just booming at you where yes. the highs are way too like shrill on your ears so I think that the problem comes down to they're trying to cater to everyone and the problem there is that it just you can't do that okay counterpoint movies didn't used to be like this yes but <laughs> like see, 15 years but, ago but if you look at how movie I mean when we look at f movies 15 years ago yes. streaming wasn't as big a thing okay. it was mostly DVD releases and movie and cinema releases yes. so you only had to balance for two yes. things really home fair cinema enough, fair and enough. Your, the, the cinema in the complex another counterpoint <laughs> modern movies I've listened to on streaming and on DVD well Blu-ray now the audio is also bad on those platforms. So yeah, and I, it's not just—it's not just my hearing. Everybody <laughs> on the internet is saying this, and also it's not just my home setup or this theater I've go to. Yeah, I went to lots of theaters. I've got—I don't buy, buy Blu-rays. I went to a friend's <laughs> house to watch something on Blu-ray because physical media. You, um, <laughs> so it's not just me, and it's not just my setup, and it's not just no, my cinema. But so it's also it's not ridiculous. It's—it's it's a global problem at the exactly. moment that lots of people have. Uh, raise, but then you have like I think it's Amazon that's working on a codec to try yes, and fix that. Yes, and I think I think uh, Nvidia was also doing something yeah. with their AI audio stuff. So I mean, people have realized that it's a problem, but yes. you're right, it is it is a real problem. So I think like for the time being, we need to just kind of what I would recommend <laughs> people do right is if you're watching with. at home. Yes. What I would recommend is to try and get an EQ for your TV or whatever. Yes. If your TV has an equalizer, sound equalizer, use it. Go and play around with it. Mess around with the different the because uh, it's usually low, mid, high. Yeah. Um, if things are too muddy, you can't hear properly. It usually means there's too much bass, so take it away. Yeah. Uh, don't add more treble because that's just going to make it tinny. Uh, just remove some of the bass. And if it's too tinny, take away some of the treble and you should be fine. Yeah, and also you can watch the subtitles watching from home. That's like one of the biggest reasons I watch stuff at home now. I love going to the theaters, but I need to hear what the characters are saying. Otherwise, I might as well just go watch fireworks. Because yeah. those are bright and colorful and <laughs> keep me entertained, but I don't need to listen to them. Perhaps more importantly, though. Yes. Miles and Gwen. Yes. Does Miles get his things? What? <laughs> Does he get his things? Explain what you're asking <laughs> me. Things. People are shipping the two, their two characters for obvious reasons. Yes. Does Miles get his things? You have to watch the movie. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean? Okay, so, it's spoiler free, man. Uh, yeah. So uh, the reason I'm harping on the audio and everything is because this movie was obviously meticulously made. Mm. Uh, animators were sitting there doing stuff frame by frame, obviously. So... The fact that it was so meticulous and the filmmakers cared so much about every other part of the movie, for the audio to be like this is 
Yeah, it's, it's a an letdown. even bigger problem than compared to other. Was movies. it made for IMAX? Maybe no, specifically. It's, it's, or? it's a it's a it's a whole problem. I think. Yeah, I, I do think that it needs to get, it needs to be addressed. Absolutely, yes. I'm not I'm not making excuses for Hollywood. I'm just giving you my perspective. Yeah, 100%. Where I think that they are going wrong. Yeah. Um, but it is. It's terrible. I can't watch stuff without subtitles now yeah. because, like you said, you can't hear what the people are saying. So you need to be able to read it. I watched Tenet on streaming with subtitles and thinking back to the first time I watched it in theaters like oh I missed like half the dialogue literally 50% of what the characters were saying um, the only other thing I want to mention this isn't a spoiler because this was announced before this movie even came out mm. this is basically part one of a two-part movie okay that's not a spoiler this was originally going to be one very long movie and they announced it was going to be split one's going to be released now one's going to be released late next year this was announced by the filmmakers but I can see a lot of people coming into this movie either without that knowledge mm. or with that knowledge still and being disappointed because it's not a full story. It is literally half. And maybe it's still a credit to this movie that I gave it such a high score. You have to read the, the review to see the score. I still gave it such a high score despite the fact that it's half a movie because it's that good. Mm. But I really want to... I don't want to temper expectations because that's what you say about bad stuff. Mm. This is really good stuff. I just... I want people to expect that. Yeah. It is half a movie. It's going to leave you on a cliffhanger. It's the same thing with Dune. You went into Dune, and the first thing Dune does, at least it has the courtesy to say part part one. one. (laughs) So I just want people to realize that and to not get to the credits and feel disappointed. I think a lot of people get to the credits and say, okay, now I'm really excited for the movie next year. But a lot of people will be disappointed. I want to preface that. So, so it's more like The Hobbit than it is uh, Lord of the Rings. No, it's more like Dune Part 1. It's, it's not, I can't compare anything to The Hobbit. What an awful thing to say, Robin. <laughs> um, so yeah, check out my full review. You're going to struggle to hear some things. It is Part 1 of a two-part movie. I still think it's fantastic. And I know movie prices are super high. The, the popcorn prices are super high. The price of everything is super high. I think you should definitely see this. And of course, kids are going to want to see this. Man, I, I can't... This probably won't perform like half as well as the Mario movie. And it feels like the Mario movie was made by... Uh, I don't want to insult anyone. This just feels so many more leagues above Mario that it's an insult to say, should I see this or Mario if I have some kids and I want to take them to an animated movie? Like, go for this, please, please. So yeah, that's my review of Across the Spider-Verse. Please check out the full written one in the links. Cool. So, speaking of animation, yes. segues really nicely <laughs> into uh, the interview that we're doing today. Um, so, Disney Star Wars, I suppose it's Disney Star Wars, right? Well, Star Wars Visions uh, Season 2 is out on Disney Plus at the moment, has been for a while. Um, and one of the short films in that series is Our Song, and that was created by Triggerfish here in South Africa. And we got the opportunity to sit down with Nadia Dares and Daniel Clark, uh, who co-directed Our Song. They both are Cape Tonians, um, who used to live down the road from one another, quite ironically. And now, in their later years, they have kind of worked or come together to work on Our Song. Um, it's a really, really lovely animation, and uh, we got to sit down with the two uh, uh, the two co-directors and chat a bit about what helped them, uh, what with the took inspiration from. Um, and then, if you want to be an animator and work on things like Into the Spider or Across the Spider Verse, um, 
they got some uh, some real insight into that as well. So uh, take a listen to that, and uh, yeah, we'll be right back. All right. Um, so today for the Africast, we wanted to do something a little bit different, um, and we brought on two people who worked on the Star Wars Visions original, um, our song. Uh, that is Nadia and Daniel. Uh, do you guys want to quickly introduce yourselves? Let's start with you, uh, Nadia. Yeah, uh, my name is Nadia Daris. I am an animator from Cape Town. Uh, I've been in the animation industry for nine to ten years. And uh, yeah, I'm an animator, creative, and co-founder of a small animation business. Fantastic. And yourself, Daniel? I am, yeah, I'm Daniel Clark. <laughs> I'm a uh, art director, illustrator, production designer. I've been in the industry for a little bit longer, about 16 or 17 years. Um yeah, I've worked on and off with Triggerfish, is who who we produced this the Star Wars film with. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's about it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. So uh, let's start a bit. Let's start off with how this came to be. So how did you guys get selected to work with Triggerfish and and Disney ultimately on this? What is being widely said to be one of the best uh, films of the second season of Star Wars Visions. Mm. <laughs> No, you're first. Okay, I'll go. <laughs> so, um, so Lucasfilm they did a Star Wars Visions one, uh, uh, season one, I think two years ago. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, the focus for that season was uh, basically they 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 wanted like different studios in Japan to to make um, you know, film, short films. And so there's I think it was like nine short films, and each one represented a stu- different studio in Japan. This time around, for the second season, they wanted to go more global. And so Lucasfilm actually contacted Triggerfish, which is an animation studio in um, Cape Town, and I think the biggest animation studio in Africa. Um, so they contacted Triggerfish um, as a rep- sort of representative of Africa, you know, on the globe. Yeah. And um, Triggerfish then contacted a bunch of artists, I think maybe 30 or 50 artists that they worked with in the past. And Daniel and myself um, are included in that list of artists. Um, and they contacted these artists asking people to pitch stories. And um, long story short, we, you know, we we each pitched a story and um, mine got shortlisted. And then Daniel heard my pitch and, he, and, and, and we sort of met up and, and got to know each other a little bit and decided we wanted to work together. And then we redid the pitch and um, we pitched to Lucasfilm um, alongside four other pitches and then Lucasfilm chose our pitch. Fantastic. Uh, for anybody who hasn't watched it, can you give us like the, uh, the cliff notes, the blurb, as it were, about what our song is about? Hmm. So it's set in a world that we got to invent, <laughs> but it's about a it's about a young girl um, and her father, and it's really about about uh, their relationship is at the core of the story, and uh, she accesses the force through her voice, um, and strange things start ha- start to happen, and she starts to connect with the Kaiba, which which the the race of Corbins we call them on this planet mine. And she kind of has to decide whether to listen to her father, who wants her to be safe, or or listen to the calling, to her calling, and um, step out into the unknown. That's very interesting, um, Nadia. I, you said that you wrote the original draft of the story. So, was it, did you take inspiration from your life when you were writing it? Yeah, well, well, I mean, I didn't really write the original draft of the story, you know, when we did those initial pictures, it was basically like a, a paragraph, <laughs> an idea. So um, Daniel and I definitely wrote the, the story together. But I mean, the aspect of singing is definitely inspired by my personal experience with singing, because I've been singing for many years. 
And so, yeah, it, it is, there is a quite a personal um, connection there when it comes to connecting to the force with the voice. So what I really liked about the the, the, the film was how uh, there's kind of this 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 feeling throughout the show that uh, if 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 Al could just finish her song, you know, if if her dad could just let her finish, maybe something something would happen. Like, was that an intentional choice that you you made to kind of not let her finish her song almost right until like towards the end of the the film? Yeah, I mean. I don't think we ever spoke about it explicitly like that, but we wanted to show, you know, we wanted to ask questions um, in the story to keep, to to intrigue the audience. We wanted to show the character of our, her trying to do something and, and what might happen. Um, but yeah, I guess it actually was, I've watched quite a few videos of people watching it on YouTube and the story is actually a lot clearer than we than we anticipated. Like people really get it. Yeah. Uh, you know, by the when she's in the cave and she gets well, not everybody, but quite a few people. You know, when she's in the cave and singing, and her father comes like, "No, let her finish, let her finish." <laughs> like, um, that's great that it was that, that it was that clear. But I also listened to another uh, podcast um, where some where the guy the guy was saying that maybe maybe actually the father helps that that she needed to sing outside. That if she sang inside, it actually would have been too dangerous. So that oh. something in a mood. And I was like, hey, okay. maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's not our story anymore. Like, we kind yeah. of just discovered it and it kind of, you know, yeah. shaped itself. Yeah, I suppose that's, that's cool about the modern era, right? Is that you have a particular story in mind and everybody's interpretation of that story is, is different. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, so yeah, Nadia, go ahead. Now, I was just going to say, you know, a story can be written by an individual or two individuals or three individuals, but once it's written, it belongs to the world, you know. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Um, <laughs> so, so with the uh, animation style that you guys chose, it's very, it reminds me a lot of like felt, like the material felt. Um, wh why did you go with that particular look and feel for the animation? Mm. Um. Yeah, so it, it it is supposed to be felt, which we had to fight very hard for because it's expensive to, re to render felt. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, yeah. yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of ray tracing and stuff. I don't know, um, but yeah, the the sort of the general philosophy around the the aesthetic, the the look and feel of the film was was uh, nostalgia, you know, childhood memories, tactility, you know, the feeling of playing with toys or dolls. Um, so every decision we made was with with that in mind, and we looked at the belly dolls and other stop frame shows like a Japanese stop frame show called Rilakuma, Rilakuna, Rilakuma. Rilakuma. Yeah. Yes. Um, and yeah, and a whole variety of of inspiration, but basically anything that would make you kind of want to reach into the screen and touch the world and be in the world and and uh, sort of just draw you in. Yeah, and and also like um, you know the 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 world itself, you know, it's like sort of it's it's all fantasy. Mm. So like having the surface the surfaces feel real, like have a certain mm. level of realism to it, and like having the landscape feel sort of familiar in in many ways. Like the, those factors um, sort of ground the you know it grounds the experience when you're watching the film. Yeah, it it helps you suspend your disbelief just that little bit more, right? Mm. 
Yeah, I think I've said this before, but I think uh, so. So we were in, for the landscape. We were inspired by um, by Cape Town, by Chapman's Peak, particularly, oh, yeah. particularly the Western Cape, the Fynbos. You know, we literally just copied Fynbos plants. <laughs> um, but I think you know, probably because of budget. But the original Star Wars films, the original George Lucas trilogy, yeah. um, all the environments are real places you know it's like tunisia and i don't know i don't know which forest they filmed in probably somewhere in oregon or something for the um forest stuff but it it, it kind of makes it feel more believable because yeah. there's so much other fantastical stuff happening that there is something familiar for us to to root yeah. to root ourselves and you know i always find if if the, if the actual world is alien you know, you watch these shows and they have these shots where the camera moves out and it's supposed to be beautiful, but it's all alien. Yeah. And I never I never respond to it emotionally, you know, because I don't recognize any of it. It's just a sort of hodgepodge <laughs> of different things from it's our real a, world. It's just a location at that point, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's not, I, yeah, I don't have any emotional connection to something I've ever seen before, you know. Yeah. So okay, so let's uh let's shift tack a little bit and talk about animation in South Africa. Um uh, as, as somebody who kind of works in a creative field, not not as technical as what you folks do, but I feel that there's there's often this kind of um, lack of support for the arts in South Africa. Uh, but then you go and you you scratch the surface and you find like great companies like Triggerfish, um, great artists like yourselves that are working really hard to kind of just tell a great story. Um, do you find that there's a lot of support in South Africa these days, uh, like? in this modern era of interconnectedness and uh, being able to like animate something on your smartphone or your, your tablet, is there a bit more support for those that are artistically minded in the year 2023? Sure. That's a, I mean, it's that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> that's dangerous. Well, there's definitely, I mean, I think, so even speaking for myself and I'm old, <laughs> I, I learned, I learned, by looking online in, uh, you know, I think I started painting digitally in like 2007. Um, and now it's like times a thousand people's access to any educational content or, or just other artists or communities. I think there's a, I think there's definitely more support uh, for self-empowerment mm. than, you know, I think that's, that's where we are right now. Um, yeah, in South Africa, I imagine like we're sort of at the evolutionary stage where there's so much available for for people to um, to teach themselves and and mm. uh, you know and and it's just it's a, it's it's easier to access. I think it's easier to access um, animation. Um, you know, there's festivals now that happen every year. I think maybe like ten years ago, maybe if there was a f festival, there might have been thirty people there. Now it's like you know you get you can have expect. It was like seventy-five thousand people came through the Comic Con, right? Something yeah. crazy like that. Yeah. But um, but support, I suppose. Yeah, you'd have to kind of define support. There's mean, opportunities. There's jobs. There didn't used to be jobs. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, and, and then I mean, I, I, I think when it comes to like um, support in terms of financial investment in like films or games or whatever being made here, like I have no idea because I'm I'm not an executive, you know, at that level. Like, trying to source funding for projects and whatever. But I mean, I think, you know, for me, I studied animation, I went to the animation school in Cape Town and that was completely funded by the government, you know, got so so 
there's definitely, I think, support in the education sphere because, I mean, animation and getting into it, it's, um, it's extremely expensive, you know, the yeah. fees are like, it's like basically crazy university fees, you know, I think right now it could, you know, it's around 70, 70 grand a year or something like there that. There is support, but it's nothing like, you know, France or Canada or something. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's also conditional. I think it's, you have to fit certain groups or, you know. You have to, you have to prove your mm. financial. Yeah. Um, but I know Trigovish has a, a Trigovish Academy, which they, I think they're sold purpose and they're funded by, I think, a German NGO or something mm. um, to develop talents from, you know, places or previously disadvantaged peoples um, just to try to tap into the massive talent pool that we that we have but there isn't a culture around around arts or animation or anything like that so a lot of the resistance comes from parents who don't trust that that their children will actually be able to have a career and and make money um, doing animation or art so it's trying to convince them that this is actually a viable option you know well, I'm sure like successes like our song do help in that regard, and of course the many successes that Triggerfish itself has had with its original uh, productions. But I'm sure that like international success and seeing local artists and mm. even even local voiceover artists on an international stage is surely helping change that tide. I mean, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, I really hope so. I mean, I know, I think, you know, whether that does more than like something, I don't know, than just like the fact that Instagram exists and like, yeah. you know, local artists who come from really disadvantaged backgrounds or, or just come from a place where they have no confidence or whatever, they can create what, you know, artwork in their bedrooms and, and, and share their stuff on Instagram. And, you know, if they if they go at that really hard and, and gain a, a, follow, a massive following and, and, and um, you know, sort of get support and opportunities that way. I mean, Daniel can definitely speak to this. I mean, you worked really hard on Instagram um, in, in, in getting your name out there and stuff. I think, I don't, you know, I don't know what does more, <laughs> you know, with our project doing well and, and, and or, or just like people selling themselves on Instagram, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think a lot, yeah, a lot of those artists, I guess, would they just work on international projects. So that's something that's great. It means we have local artists too, you know, working at the top echelons of of the industry. But to actually produce content that sort of represents or is from South Africa, that's um, that's new. There's a new interest in Africa in the last five or six years that definitely wasn't there before. Like Trigovich was making, you know, talking animal films because that's that was the only viable thing that would yeah. potentially sell. I don't think people were really interested in in actual African stories or African voices, you know, um, yeah. which they do seem to be somewhat now. You know, it's always conditional. Yeah. It's always, you know, we want your voice in this way. <laughs> yeah, Although, yeah. to be fair, Lucasfilm was really yeah we didn't have that experience strangely for a yeah for a big american company very gave us a lot of creative freedom so it's like you say daniel it's people are warming to the idea of hearing stories from africa and i think that that might have something to do with africa awakening as a technological hub you know um, while we not, might not be on the same level as places like China or the US or Europe, I think that more and more people are starting to realize that, hey, there's this big wide space online, which isn't just about sharing memes with your friends on Facebook, but you can actually do something with it. 
I mean, just things like TikTok, where where you could uh, start earning money from TikTok or YouTube or Facebook or whatever it may be. I think that these these platforms are helping storytellers maybe just get a wider audience and show, hey, listen, we have some really cool stuff that's happening here on this continent. Pay attention to us, and maybe don't try and make us do what do things in our voice or in your voice. Let us do it in let us do it in our voice. Um, yeah, in best, best case scenario for sure. I suspect, to be honest, that the interest in Africa is thanks to African Americans. They have a huge cultural influence in in the states. There's a lot of movement in the last you know five or six years around in America having African American voices you know be be forwarded and put put you know like Black Panther and and all all sorts of studios are making content with with African American leads. And I think African Americans are interested in Africa because in some ways that's you know with it. Yeah, the heritage. So, I mean, we're just the lucky recipients of that. I'm not complaining. I think it's great. Yeah. If it gives people more of a soapbox to stand on. Power yeah, we're, Af- we're Africans, so we benefit. Our country. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think what is, what is um, great to see is just like, because I know a couple of people who've, they've gained a local following through social media, um, you know, without, I don't know, I, think, I feel like, you know, America, if I think of America, I immediately think of this massive pride and um, uh, national pride and, and sort of pride in your uh, your national identity. And I think for us as South Africans, you know, we it's a, it's a, it's a, we, we still maybe, um, we're not quite there yet in our journey in terms of becoming extremely proud um, together and, you know, and, and proud of each other and, and celebrating each other's successes and paying attention to each other's creations. And I think, um, I think, Probably over the past couple of years, we, the, the young people, the younger people, the newer, the younger generations, newer generations of South Africans, you know, it have been shown more, more sort of a, a sense of being proud of what we create and what we can create together, and, and you know what that where we could take that into the future. So I think naturally, as our voices become like more confident and louder, we will be harder to ignore. You know. Yeah. <laughs> That's a that's a brilliant point, brilliant brilliant insight. Um, I, I I want to shift a little bit now to how did you guys get into this? So Nadia, how did you get into animation? Was it just did you pick up a pencil and start drawing and say, th- ah, I'm pretty good at this? So how how did your <laughs> journey in the start? I love that uh, the idea of <laughs> where you just <laughs> yeah, that is Daniel's journey. <laughs> uh, for me, I think. Uh, I never in school and stuff. I knew, didn't really know what I wanted to do after school. Um, I just knew I had to do well at school um, so that I could have options, <laughs> you know, because I could get bursaries and stuff. Um, and fortunately, I was able to do that. But um, so when when it came to like matric and I and I got a couple of like bursary offers, and I just I was I felt lost because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, then I, I went to UCT because uh, I got accepted for like PPE and then I went to UCT and then I decided to just do random courses. And then I discovered that you could study animation. Ah. And I remember that when in grade two, we had like a career thing or whatever in grade two, we have to like some project where you have to <laughs> like uh, make a poster about what you want to be one day. And I remember I either wanted to be an inventor or scientist or um, 
or an animator. I didn't even know how the flip I knew anything about and you know about that back then. And I made like a, a what you call I think it's called a zootrope. A zootrope. Oh, wow. Good. So I remember that, and I and, and then you know, and I found out that you could study animation. I just thought instantly, like this seemed more interesting, interesting than because if, if I studied like science or economics or whatever, like I'd, I'd learn a lot about the rules of the world, you know. But with animation, you can create, um, you can create worlds, and you can you can you you learn about the rules of the world anyways because we have to study, we have to observe everything, and you know, when you're recreating a world, you sort of need to know a certain amount of of, of um, you know, sort of what you, what you, the, the the elements that you're basing it on, and whatever. But then you can go ahead and break those rules, you know, and and create other new rules. And so that was quite, uh, it seemed more exciting than than staying at UCT. <laughs> so that's how yeah. I you make me want to become an animator. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Be the king of the world. <laughs> uh, Daniel, yourself, how did you find yourself in this this industry? In this industry, I so I've always done art. Since I was, you know, always even as a child, I was I was that kid in school who drew. You know, yeah. I remember like charging other kids to to do the drawings for them, um, and I did lots of you know playing around with friends, doing claymation animation. You know, where you, where you hit the uh, record stop button on a video camera mm. to take a frame. Um, and I also did a project in school where I did. Uh, comic books and animation. I did sort of William Kentridge robot type animation. At that time, I was into a very st strange combination of influences like Dragon Ball Z and William Kentridge. Um, <laughs> after school, I kind of wanted to do fine art. So I did, you know, oil paintings and that sort of thing. And then I didn't really like the world of fine art. It felt, well, I just, it felt inscrutable to me. I couldn't, I didn't understand it. It felt all about sort of the the sticker next to the piece of art, what that said was the important thing, not the piece of art. Yeah. And I, I think I watched it like a Lord of the Rings behind the scenes and the artists there impressed me so much. And I just really loved how it was very meritocratic. Like you can't, with with design, for film or for you know, a comic, you can't hide behind the idea. You either can do it or you can't. You're either good or you're not. Mm. Your skills very much, you know, at the forefront. And then... I was 21 or 22 I found Triggerfish they were literally like a few roads down the a few streets away from me um and that was my first I wasn't I, I wanted to be a like a concept artist in film I wasn't actually planning on going into children's animation children's animation didn't interest me that much at the time and then when I started working at Triggerfish I still, you know I was like I guess I, I guess I better learn about this thing that I'm involved in and I sort of fell in love with you know some of the early Pixar films and early Disney stuff and then found Miyazaki and forgot about Pixar and Disney and <laughs> grew up. <laughs> so what advice would you have for somebody listening to this that wants to get into animation? Where would you recommend they start? Oh, they so start anywhere. Yeah, it depends on their temperament as a person. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, depending on your vision for yourself, like if you're in, if your vision is to tell stories, or if your vision is to 
create beautiful you know visual pieces or just have a beautiful like visual contribution to something or if you want to you know bring us add a, bring a give a spirit to a puppet like depending on, on what you technically solve problems oh yeah it's exactly. a huge amount of technical expertise in animation yeah that's like you know those are the highest thing <laughs> if you if you love like the, yeah exactly the technical stuff uh, coding and stuff damn it's like it's so it's all different but i mean look there's there's the animation school where, where nadia went and if you can afford to go there it's a great um entryway it's a it's basically a feeder school into the industry like almost everybody nowadays in the industry comes from the animation school okay. um so you can get bursaries or have rich yeah. parents <laughs> yeah if you if you don't have the funding um a lot of um people get funding from the nfef the National Film and Video Foundation, and I got my funding from them as well. Okay. Um, yeah, but Daniel's right. I, I would recommend that as well, the animation school, because they, they sort of take you through all the parts of a production. So you you get to see all of it, and then, you know, by third year, you sort of get a sense of, okay, what you don't like yeah. <laughs> doing and what you might like doing. Yeah. If, if, you're, if you're self-motivated and you have a computer, you can teach yourself everything they teach you at animation school, you know, easily, if you're self-motivated, and put together some sort of a portfolio, do some modeling, do some texturing, whatever. Yeah, you can get a job. And then. you can get a job in the industry yeah. instantly. There's always so much um, uh, there's so much um, need for, for staff. Yeah. You know? Okay, yeah. So, so, sorry, Nadia, carry on. Yeah, so I was going to say, like, if you you don't need to go to a school to to get a job, if getting a job is your, you know, your sort of your goal. Mm. <laughs> but um, one other thing that uh, is extremely important and um, not necessarily something that people think about when entering the industry, it's just how, so making a, an, you know, doing, creating animation, animated videos and stuff, it's a team effort. Mm. It is, is always a team effort. It's like, you know, so one thing you get from going to going to school and being around other students and having to like do projects together and then they put you in a group, you know, and like I know at the animation school in your third year, you have to make a short form. You spend that whole year making a short form with a group of people and, you know, just the challenges that you go through having to work with people that you didn't choose necessarily to work with. And it's so it's like that is the true value to me mm. um, from going to a school. You know, because then when you enter the industry, I think a lot of creatives uh, can be sensitive, sensitive people, or what, be me? slightly I'm more sensitive, <laughs> a bit more sensitive uh, in certain areas, or struggle with criticism, or struggle with even speaking to other people. You know, mm. so like um, it's a great sort of social or emotional um, gateway into into work life and into the industry. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So uh, many ways. Fantastic. Um, so what are you guys hoping to work on next? Uh, Daniel, let's start with you. What, what sort of project would you like to work on next? Feature film, game? We're going to make uh, Harry Potter short and then, <laughs> then Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> it's all the big IPs. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> um, we, so Nani and I have both kind of just gone back to our bread and butter work. I'm, a, like I said, an art director, an illustrator. Um, but we, well, I'm, you know, percolating stories, writing things, you know, developing things, always nothing, you know, at the stage where we can really talk about it yet. But okay. I think, you know, 
I don't I don't have any uh, you kind of work on a story and you got to kind of find out what it needs to be rather yeah. than deciding what it's going to be from the forefront but definitely telling stories again I think yeah. Nadia and I would be keen to work together again if the right story arises and the right you know the right amount of creative freedom is afforded us like it was a bit spoiled this one yeah. Yeah, this project we had so much freedom, we definitely spoiled. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's, I don't know, it's like, I mean, I'm sure Daniel would um, agree to this. It's like, you know, when you, with the projects, we know whether it's a big project like this, where you, you know, you're creating something that's for a huge audience um, or and, or a big name, or if it's something small that, you know, like, you know, me, I, I write like songs in my bedroom and if five people see the, you know, hear the song on YouTube or if I don't even upload it, but I made it, like, when it comes to creating things, it feels like there's a spirit knocking on your, knocking on your shoulder, you know, like sort of a spirit taking its index finger and like tapping you on the shoulder, tapping you on the shoulder, tapping you on the shoulder. And then either you pay attention to it or you sort of, you know, try to decline because you need all your energy on something else right now or whatever. So for me, I, I definitely am feeling <laughs> knocks on the shoulder, you know, and it's challenging. I think it's challenging when you, when you get that feeling mm. and, and you, and you can see that there's something that wants to come out or something that wants to come through. And then you have to make the decision, you know, you know what a struggle it is to try and convince people yeah. that this worth hearing or this is a story worth telling and so I think I'm in that place now where it's like I have to decide um you know am, am, am I gonna do this am I gonna fight for this this thing fight for it fight for <laughs> it Nadia there you go tell people your story yeah these damn spirits yeah. <laughs> you gotta open the door they kick the door down <laughs> they climb through the window yeah, I'm I'm all about just don't think about it, just do, just do it. If it feels good, do it. If it's not going to hurt anybody, do it. That's like the definition of hedonism. <laughs> cystic hedonism. <laughs> Fantastic, guys! Thank you so much for your time. I don't want to take too much more, um, but thank you so much for giving us your insights and sharing your stories with us. Um, where can people follow you if you want people to follow you? Where can they find you online? Yeah. Um, for me, Instagram, uh, my name, Daniel Clark, and then Art, Daniel Clark Art. Um, yeah, I'm also on Instagram. I don't share a lot, but uh, my name is um, Asain, like Afrikaans for vinegar. Yeah. Asain. That's my artist name. Oh, man, that's so great. That's such a good handle. Afrikaans for vinegar. You didn't even know that. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic daniel and nadia thank you so much for joining us um i really appreciate your time um and thank all the best with the future and yeah thank if you haven't watched our song go and watch it it's fantastic thanks thank you thanks, thanks, you. Yeah. Yeah. thanks guys right thanks a lot to nadia and daniel be sure to check them out on their socials to keep up with what they are doing in the future um yeah, but from us, that's going to wrap up this edition of the Africast. From myself, Brendan Lott, cheerio from Robin Nichetti. Take care, everyone. And from Kizmatos. Bye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.